You are listening to the Worlding Podcast, where we explore the relationship of how we are both shaping and being shaped by our surroundings. The podcast traces interconnections by inviting each episode's guest to pass on the mic to someone who has influenced their world. And now, here's your host, dance artist Renee Schadler. Welcome to Welding, where we're starting today a new three-part series, beginning with Samuel Hertz, who is a sound artist, researcher, and actually a friend of mine. Lovely to have you with us, Sam. Thanks for having me, Renee. <laughs> today we're diving into complexity theory and your research as a sound artist at the intersections of Earth-based sound, sonic sensualities, and climate change. So really big and dense topics there. Can you share your approach, especially in relation to complex city theory and how you're working with that in your research? Sure. I come from a background of music composition. I always understood sound and music to be the same thing. And at some point in time, they began to separate quite a lot for me. And the way that I think I understand the separation is that sound became, for me, a, a, an item or a material that stands much more in the space of showing or, or creating or sounding the relationships between different materials or different ways of being or different layers of being and layers of understanding. So for me, as I started as I started to dig a bit more into my practice as a sound artist, but also a researcher working with the concept of sound, I also became increasingly important to understand what sound articulates. So how we can understand it beyond the sort of acoustic realm, how, how sound operates in a physical space, but rather kind of taking taking notions from the way sound works in acoustic space and applying it to things that produce sound or things that take sound or things that augment sound. And very quickly from there, you can see what a sort of complex role sound plays in shaping worlds, as well as articulating worlds, as well as describing worlds, as well as helping describe worlds to others, other materials or other things. And the more I kind of I would say the deeper I stepped into the world of sound, let's say, the more I understood that sound articulates complexity because of the way that it interacts in complex manners between material relationships and between materials. So it's a way for me of articulating a lot of different, as I said earlier, a lot of different layers. So sound works in a way that you can use it to understand relationships between things, but also kind of how they're stacked vertically, how they sit next to each other horizontally, and understanding what those relationships between things are without needing to relegate them to understandings of like chaos, because I don't think that they're quite the same thing. Wow, it's so many images in my mind now as you talk through like this vertical stacking and then these horizontal layers, like it feels very expansive actually and these interrelations and how they develop meaning and understanding of where we are like as you talk about sonic sensualities it kind of creates a density also in space would you say 
Yeah, how do you in- invite people into these types of spaces or environments with your artistic practice? I'm going to like step sideways from your question because I really like the word density. So maybe I can dig into that for a moment, which I think also relates to how I deal with it in a kind of practice-based level. But I think the importance of complexity is actually at its core density, which is not to say making things dense, but rather to say like understanding how dense, seemingly simple situations can be, or like the world exists in a, in a complex entangled, you know, complex entangled bundles, let's say. And in order to sort of approach the world, whether it be from a research perspective, from an artistic perspective, from a policy perspective, for me, it's really important that that complexity gets teased out a bit. And I think density is really important because of, because of this notion of stacking, because of this notion of uh, layering and sort of tangled webs of effects, a cause and effect uh, relationships that get sort of muddled and confused with, based on our human uh, senses of time. So that for me is a really important relationship. And then I think that deal that, that comes into how I deal with it in a practice-based level. I mean, there's this sort of research practice which has to do with understanding, let's say, in the work I've, I've been doing recently with uh, bioacoustics and ecoacoustics, understanding how comp- how these uh, research methods actually use really complex views of time and space to create sort of large aggregate images of animal populations, which can essentially eventually be used for conservation or, or stewardship purposes, let's say, or some other kind of research and practical work I've been doing recently about uh, water cycles or the hydrologic cycle, which has to do a bit more with creating a more complex view of how this cycle works, which is that it's not really properly a, a cycle in a, in a kind of circular way, but it has these sort of outgrowths and tendrils and detours that are, make the image more complex, but are actually really important because without these sort of weird dead ends and stagnant pools and, virtu- and notions of virtuality we turn the world, our world, into a sort of convenient fiction, which operates basically in line with human capital interests. So in other words, in introducing complexity into the issue on a practice, uh, practice-based level also helps us deal with a much more, mm, I hesitate to say the word real, but a much more like tangible version of the world, which uh, seems to be more confusing and more complex, but also therefore a bit easier to uh, engage with and understand our place in the world. I think I answered your question, but I'm honestly not sure. Well, it was a very entangled journey, let's say that, <laughs> in terms in terms of, of following the topic, because it is very dense. And I remember in preparation for this talk, we were talking about the water cycle. And maybe you could share with listeners how the human enters in this virtual layer 
because I think that's really important in understanding also welding, which we've been exploring creatively through this podcast, what welding can be, this reciprocal relation of shaping and being shaped by our surroundings, while at the same time understanding our human lifespan in relation to other ecosystems, which can include more than human scales. And so I think for that, this image you shared of the world of cycle, maybe you could dig into that a little bit just to share kind of, I guess, the scale of the human lifespan within that. Sure. Yeah. This work on the, on the water cycle, the sort of basis of it is, is looking at this, um, let's say cyclical procedure, which is called the hydrologic cycle, which is broadly speaking, just a description of how water circulates around the earth, everything from aquifers to transpiration, uh, precipitation, evaporation, this sort of like classic cloud to sea to underwater diagrams that we probably all had in, in schools. The interesting thing about these diagrams is that they're kind of, I mean, it's, I think what the interesting part for me is that we kind of now talk a lot about the more than human, right? And what's interesting about looking at any of these diagrams, basically, if you just put the word hydrologic cycle into Google, you'll probably see the, you know, a hundred versions of the same diagram, which are always more than human. And also maybe something like ex the except than human, the other than human, because we're really missing from the picture, which is a bit bizarre because we have kind of such a large effect on the, on the cycle. We do have an effect, but it's also important not to overplay it because this, this kind of cyclical procedure is also happening with huge, huge, huge volumes of, of water, most of which are not moving at any given time. They're kind of sitting underground for thousands, millions of years, maybe relatively untouched. So we don't also want to exaggerate the place of the human in this picture. But I think what's also really important is this notion of virtuality. I mean, the phrase virtual water in particular was a topic raised in the, I think the mid nineties, I can't offhand, I can't remember the name of the researcher who proposed it, who basically said that the way we can understand uh, virtuality in this respect is the extent to which humans remove water from this cycle, this, let's say, in heavy scare quotes, natural cycle, remove water from the cycle and cause it to be a participant in, in essentially commodity flows, which can mean a lot of, which can mean a lot of things. It can mean anything from drinking water that comes into that stays temporarily in our plumbing systems for let's say minutes it can mean water that's temporarily stored in water bottles let's say that happens in the scales of months it can have to do with shipping of water to other places to be bottled which maybe can also be in the scale of months it can be uh, water that's used to cool data centers in the desert which is, you know, has a faster turnaround time, but kind of functions in a, in its own interior sort of recycling process. The point is that with this notion of virtuality, it, it, it lets us look at the complex ways that water gets used within our own systems and the ways that we've created these sort of alternate 
detours and pathways where we sort of effectively remove water from the cycle. But I think what what his argument is also is that basically we're not removing water from the cycle. It just becomes virtual for a moment because it will always go there. Water that gets trapped in a plastic bottle that lays on the side of the highway for 10,000 years, the water is going to eventually find its way back into this sort of overarching cycle. The plastic's going to degrade at some point in time. The water is always going to find its way back. But uh, the notion of virtuality is important because it creates a different sense of understanding of what a cycle is and what our part what our part in this cycle is. So we're not disrupting the cycle, let's say, because we're a part of it too. We drink water, we excrete water. It's all, you know, that's part of these natural systems. But the, I think the topic of virtuality is important because we can also extend that to other sort of cyclical systems. I tend to think of like ecosystemic relationships of, of virtuality, ways in which human interference or inclusion in those specific ecologies creates virtual and real presences and virtual is a weird word because we're removing water so it becomes virtual to the system but what it's precisely isn't is virtual in real life because to remove water it does literally remove a material amount so nestle hoarding water removes the fact of water from the villages from which it takes the water right so we also can't pretend that this virtuality is a is a video game virtuality because it is precisely real also it just is virtual in that it's creation of a of alternate or an other let's say i find it humbling actually from a human perspective to think of ourselves within this more than human scale and at the same time i'm curious how to maintain care, which is a difficult word to say, but how within this complexity, we can maintain perhaps the gravitas of our actions in this in this chain of events or stacking of events. Because I can imagine, you know, this idea also of like, the overwhelm of it, like if I take a plastic water bottle and take it out and then litter a plastic bottle in this huge time scale it's kind of this virtual aspect in that but it still has an effect yeah how do you work with maintaining the gravitas of actions while thinking about something so massive yeah it's a good it's a good question about care to understand complexity or density also creates a little bit of a in one sense, it can create a burden, i.e. like having way too much information at your disposal and sort of unable to make a move. The other thing is to be sort of overwhelmed in the sense of, as you said, you take a water bottle, you remove it from the system, but it's also just a water bottle. At what point does care enter into the situation as something that's encouraged by complexity, if I understand the question correctly. Yeah, I often wonder, I often wonder about that because I think care is 
a word I struggle with. And because for me, sometimes care can be related to also a very human, I don't think care is solely in the province of human, but I think in, in conversations that I'm a part of, let's say specifically to do with conservation efforts, I think care is a really interesting word because it generally tends to mean something more like stewardship, which is a very like antiquated concept in a way when you want to deal with critical ecosystems, right? Or at least it creates care, then creates a power structure where humans are still on top because we're, we're not caring with something, we're caring for something, that puts us in the situation of being in charge. Then you can say, oh, I don't want to be in charge of anything. I don't want, so I, then I shouldn't care for anything, which I also don't think is exactly the, the, the right approach. It makes me think, I'm kind of sidestepping your question, but I'm also trying to answer it at the same time. It makes me think a bit of Stephen Carpenter, who is an ecologist, uh, Stephen Carpenter's work around this one-way street hypothesis, I think it's called, which is essentially that, you know, ecosystems are at their core unstable. I mean, they have a kind of homeostatic presence that this, like, regulatory systems of a specific ecology will try to maintain over time, but the conditions of those systems are are non-binary, right? They're kind of constantly in flux too. Like the system, the, the rules for the system are also changing over time. And so there's no sense in which you have an ecosystem which is going to be undisturbed, let's say, if humans never existed, in the sense that they're disturbed by humans. If humans never existed, it's not that we're going to have ecosystems which remain undisturbed over uh, or unchanged over very long periods of time, because that's actually what they do. They change. Which he says doesn't mean that we shouldn't develop an understanding of like how changes in ecosystems affect other beings and materials that are entangled in these ecosystems. And it also doesn't mean that we might as well just throw our plastic bottles into the creek because they're going to change anyway. But in some way, care could maybe be thought much more as like non-interference rather than stewardship. Because what stewardship or conservation efforts try to do is create a little, a little bit of a fiction, and I'm sort of characterizing broadly, so you'll have to excuse me. But they create a little bit of a fictitious world that we try to return natural environments to. And I don't think that that's a really pessimistic thought because I think that there's very good reasons for preserving very specific ecologies. But in some way, we also have to think about the power relationships that are caused by, by care, meaning care as stewardship or taking charge over something rather than using complexity or density, as you said, as a tool to investigate, like, a more nuanced approach to what it would mean to maintain environments or what are specific ecologies, not what are they doing, but how are they functioning and, and what roles do they play and what's our role within that. That begins to be a much more interesting way to think about care for things, but it's also a much more nuanced one. And it's also one which I think takes a much more time and understanding and therefore opens a lot of 
doors towards things like eco-pessimism or eco-paralysis, right? The idea that things take so long or they're so overwhelming that there's almost nothing we can do. And I'm, I'm personally of the opinion that it's better to care than not to care, let's say. But, but it's, it's, it's frustrating, yeah. Absolutely. Also that it's difficult to define. I think that if in this idea of complexity and entanglement and caring with and thinking with and worlding as being a verb that you do in relation to something in the present moment while being aware of kind of taking a back seat in regards to deep time and different time scales. It's a very, yeah, sensitized way of, of being in place and being with land, which I think is, yeah, I can't even explain it. I want to say like, challenging like I feel the labor in it of like practicing this way of being and then at the same time actually like incremental is there a way of developing this thinking and definitely this podcast I think all of the guests have had different approaches whether it's from an indigenous perspective or from a queer perspective and often from the minority I feel like these peripheries infiltrating in some way like we're kind of webbing things together and it is creating this entanglement that maybe makes some voices softer and magnifies others and so I think that's a, a beautiful proposition how how can we care with in the mindset and the awareness of complexity it's a beautiful proposition Sam, I'm curious how listeners can experience these concepts practically. We've been working through the podcast with ways that obviously listeners are perhaps driving a car or riding a bicycle, but when they return home or when they have a moment, do you have a way that they could embody what you're proposing? Yes. I think that for me, well, one thing that we didn't really talk so much yet about is the sense of scale and kind of scalar challenges in, I mean, very practically, like, let's say on a policy level, what the scalar challenges of, of creating effective climate policy would look like from the scales of time and, and the temporal, spatio-temporal dimension, let's say. For me, I think that's a really important way that sound kind of re-enters the picture because I think sound is a way that really helps. Uh, sound is a force, let's say, that really helps bring spatio-temporal concepts together. And by that, I mean kind of help tease out how complex they are by a little bit peeling back the layers and showing how complex our lived life always is with respect to sound, especially in the sense of, of listening, which I, you know, spent last few years sort of uh, in a more artistic practice sense dealing with complexity of, of everyday listening. Because I think on one hand, it's a very practical exercise that really just kind of literally opens up your, your ears and your body to a much more nuanced understanding of, of the sonic world around you. But 
there's also the metaphorical relationship, which has to do with uh, how we can see, or at least understanding the metaphor of sound revealing layers of activity around you as being a transferable concept, essentially, that has to do with other ways that we approach kind of the more mundane or standard acts of of lived life with a way that engages with the more entangled understanding of what's happening around us. So I have a short sort of score, I would say, maybe. That might be the appropriate word for it. And um, my sense is that this is something that can be sort of activated in any in any kind of busier atmosphere. I think it's nice when you're, you know, at home by yourself, if there's not very much activity, but, but personally, I think it works a bit better to be kind of out in the world among anthropogenic noise along around animal sounds around machine sounds. I mean, I think this is the type of exercise that really benefits from being a little bit more obviously immersed in a sound world. But I can go ahead and just read what I've got here. Beautiful, a gift. Thanks, Sam. Of course. Try to hear or feel the sound closest to you. Not the sound which is the loudest or the vibration which is the strongest, but the one which is the most proximal. Tune your focus as sharply as possible towards this sound, eliminating, to whatever degree possible, any sound outside of this small sphere. Gradually, move your attention outward understanding that the point at which a sound reaches your attention, regardless of its volume, is the point at which the vibration has also physically reached you. The sounds may sound as if they're far away. You only hear distance properly once the distance between you and the source of the sound has been bridged by the force of sound itself. Letting your attentional sphere expand outwards, new sounds and distances occur. Begin to trace them backwards. What are the qualities and colors of these sounds that hint at their origins? Can you tell where they've come from? Letting your attention move further afield, following and tracing sounds until they meet other sounds perhaps sounds which are barely audible. Different sounds which seem to come from the same space, the same place. Or even sounds which can be seen, but perhaps not heard or felt. Let your attention drift further outwards until your focus disappears. And for a moment, let all sounds become indistinguishable from each other. That's the end of that. Wow, I'm I'm listening in headphones 
So when I had the first proposition to hear a sound closest to me, I actually went into kind of like a static sound within my headphones. And then I was able to take out one bud and hear my environment. And it's quite interesting. I'm not sure with listeners, if they're listening in headphones, maybe also to take the memory of this score then into a space and and practice it in a different time. I feel like it's something that would be wonderful to practice kind of over a period as we've been talking about complexity and virtual human relations within these systems. I can imagine this being almost a friend's score that you can carry with you at different moments. Have you been practicing it over time, Sam? Mm. This is sort of the let's say, written down version of a score, which in some sense I've practiced in the in the way that I've used it in workshops, let's say, with, with people as a kind of tuning score, because I think it's really helpful to orient the ear to a specific space. And I think it does a lot of kind of backgrounding work orally to, to kind of give you a sense of space. Like it helps sort of define the foreground, the background of the situation that, that you find yourself listening in. But also personally, it kind of came from a place that I think I realized I was always doing it anyway. I mean, when I hear things that are interesting to me, to use a very non-descriptive word, I mean, um, I think this is a practice that occurs to me naturally without needing to think about it as in I'm not going when I'm in a when I'm in a public place and hearing a very complex sound atmosphere I'm not going through the steps of the score but it's a sort of step procedure that I find to always be a part of my listening practice anyway and I think it's helpful for kind of this experiential perspective as in in the way that I said earlier, like a sort of just kind of baseline understanding of how complex these listening situations are, but also in an analytic perspective. I mean, this is sort of essentially related to some of the scientific methodologies that are used for, for sound collection or data collection in the form of sound by ecoacousticians and bioacousticians, right? It's about understanding what's the relationship between space and time in a in a given situation that sort of builds a broader image of the sound world around you. In my sense, personally, not always in a total totally audience perspective, but realizing that the score can also be performed as you're walking around. It could be that the sound that's closest to you is the sound of your own feet walking, right? So we're not, we should also understand that we're not so separate from the system. So I'm not also really understanding it in a way of being audience, if only for a moment, perhaps being audience, but only being audience as a way to understand a bit more complicated sense of how it is that we actually participate in the first place, let's say. It's also a very concrete example of how artistic practice is intersecting with complexity theory and kind of creating real world, again, we come up to this, <laughs> this <laughs> idea, but impacting in your research around climate change. I really appreciate so much you coming 
onto the welding podcast and contributing to our dive into what welding can be because, yeah, it's given us a lot to chew on, I think, and something to be entangled with and care with and very rich, Sam. There's so many ands. I think the <laughs> ands will continue. I need to... I need to sit with it, I think. I need to sit with it and hear it and be with it. So thank you so much for being so generous and sharing your work with us today. Yeah, of course. Of course. I'm very happy to. As part of being our third string figure, you've recommended a speaker to come onto the show for the next episode. And we're going to take one step outwards from Berlin. I'm always starting each string with a Berlin-based artist. And I believe you've gone further afield. Who have you recommended for the next episode? Uh, yeah, I've recommended my collaborator and friend, Christina Gruber, who is a really interesting visual artist and uh, also a freshwater ecologist who's based in uh, Vienna. So Christina is very interesting. I'm sure that you'll have a great time talking with her. Thank you so much for recommending her and contributing to the podcast. I wish you a beautiful day, Sam. Great. Thank you, Renee. <laughs> Farewell, listeners, and we'll see you next episode. Ciao. Ciao. Thank you for listening to The Worlding Podcast. Gefördert durch die Beauftragte der Bundesregierung für Kultur und Medien im Programm Neustart Kultur. Hilfsprogramm des Tanzen des Dachverband Tanz Deutschland.